Thank you, Mr. Fold. Yep. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Childhood Ruined, radio-free coronavirus. I'm Mike. This is Chris. Hello. It has been a month. So it has. I don't even know where to start. <laughs> so, yeah, I was looking uh, just before we started this, and is my mic way too hot? It seemed like it was really loud for the, the music. Uh, we'll, we'll fix it in post. It's great. Okay, great, great. Uh, I, May 25th, I believe, was our last recording. Okay, it is June 29th. Yeah. So, I mean, that was literal days before all hell broke loose for us locally, and then eventually the world to follow. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's it's... It's been a, a month or so since. <laughs> and not only that, uh, we have some some personal tragedies that bookend the month here. Anniversaries yeah. that were challenging for, for both of us. Right. And so if, if you're going to do pandemic and then, you know, civil unrest, um, might as well throw in some painful anniversaries to, to boot. Yeah, we are surviving. Yep, um, we are we are privileged to be to be surviving. Definitely want to acknowledge that up front. Yep, for sure. And yeah, just being in the Twin Cities here, and you're much closer to everything going on because you're actually in St. Paul, mm -hmm. and not right on top of where there were protests and a lot of unrest, but not too far from that. yeah. No, we had a break in just around the corner during, you know, the opportunistic uh, vandalism, violence and theft that took place in and around the, you know, legitimate, um, you know, uprising. And, uh, you know, all my I have quite a few businesses by me. They were all boarded up and whatnot for several weeks there. So uh, I had National Guard driving by out front, I presume, where they were staying um, was kind of in a straight line between me and the governor's mansion because it seemed like trucks would roll by with them going one way and then come back the other way. So I assumed they were relieving shifts and stuff. So I suddenly felt like it, it really, like most of all, reminded me of when I visited Northern Ireland back in the, you know, mid-90s. And there were still very much like the armored vehicles rolling around and stuff as there was kind of that ever-present 
policed state and, you know, potential threat of violence and blah, blah, blah. So it was a strange experience for sure. I never felt particularly in, in danger or anything like that. We have some shared friends that were a lot closer to the action. Yeah. Um, I have a good friend that lives blocks from sort of ground zero um, cup foods where um, George Floyd was killed, murdered. Um so yeah, I've, I you know, <laughs> it, it has, has been a, a, a strange time, but all in all, you know, not. Uh, again, you said we're privileged, and I continue to be. So. <laughs> yeah, no, we we have like you mentioned some friends who are right in the thick of things, where pretty tense evenings with a lot of people, a lot of commotion, and wife and I were down in the suburbs, so we weren't really close to anything. And it, (laughs) yeah, it's it's not even not laughing. It's just uncomfortable because it's like, where, what do you say? How how do Mm -hmm. we add to the conversation that's been going on for a month? (laughs) Like, do you skip over it? Do you chime in? Um, You know, I have this unique perspective of growing up in a household that, you know, my father was in the military, then he was a police officer, then he was a state trooper, he was shot and killed in the line of duty when I was eight. And so I grew up very much in the mindset of police, fire, EMS are not revered, but certainly respected, Mm -hmm. seen as a source of good. Mm-hmm. And so I still hold some of that, and I have the awareness and wherewithal and knowledge that there's just this structural and institutional racism kind of one way of justice and law enforcement for some, and another way for a lot of other people. And those two things kind of cohabitate in my brain. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to have a nuanced conversation, certainly online, about right. any of these things. Yep. And when you want change that's pretty dramatic and drastic, it's it's hard to be a voice of trying to find not even middle ground, but not a hundred and eighty degrees in, in one direction or the other. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a challenging topic to discuss and, you know, I've talked about it with, with some friends some family. Um, and again, very much from the sidelines mm-hmm. in my nest of privilege. Uh, right. <laughs> so again, I don't want to overstate how much this is like directly affected me. Yep. Um, I've just been on the other side of it with, you know, my, my father was executing a, a drug raid. He was an undercover cop and, he was shot and killed instantly. Um, and again, that was, I was eight. So this was 85. Mm-hmm. Um, and just growing up in that world and then having some of those ideas challenged and learning about other people's perspectives and learning that, Oh, Hey, yeah, not everyone really sees cops as this like ivory tower, good thing. And learning about that. And certainly in recent years with the advent of, like cell phone technology and whatnot, it's just sort of the same story playing out over and over and over and over again. Yep. 
And you can say, well, not all cops are bad, and I don't think they are. There's something structurally going on that we should do something about sooner rather than later. Yeah, and I, I mean, I guess my perspective on this has been aided by the fact that I have a pretty close friend and her partner who are, you know, both black, both living very near to ground zero of this and have been sort of like as much or more than anyone sort of the in my ear about kind of how, if not oblivious, at least somewhat aloof <laughs> to a lot of things that I've been, because frankly, I am part of the um, class of people that police were originally created to protect and um, therefore, I get to mostly be oblivious if I choose to be to to these issues. And I, I don't want to, you know, take this too far down the line, you know, politically and whatnot, because it's just it's impossible to have this conversation without it quickly getting into stuff that people get their get either offended by or angry about or whatnot. But, you know, you mentioned this idea of, you know, not all cops are bad and you know, I think what they and I, I really hate putting words in other people's mouths, but sort of what a lot of people in this you know movement right now are saying is like, sure, no, they're not bad as individual people, but the 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 things that they're working for are broken, and so that's sort of where this you know the a cab idea is coming from it's not saying that every single police officer is a bad person every single police officer is not trying to do the right thing cuz i think everybody understands that those people are out there but it's just it's so problematic as a whole that that's where that uh a cab saying comes from so anyway well and i mean some of the stuff that i've just read and trying to absorb, including like the whole like defund the police. And to me, it's more of a public health issue mm-hmm. where the police are asked to do really too much in a, in a lot of ways. Like I think about because we don't have great mental health services. Uh, or they sh- they're not as nearly as accessible as they should be. I mean, we think right. we mentioned that previously. Yep. Um, community mental health centers are not as prominent and so on and so forth. So you have a lot of likely untreated mental illness that turns into homelessness, that turns into uh, crime potentially. Mm-hmm. And instead of having social services that are engaging those individuals, you have police officers who are there to really enforce order and have people follow rules who maybe are not capable of understanding or following them and things escalate in a really usually tragic, violent direction. Right. And that's just one example of, I think how police are kind of tasked with doing a lot of things that are really, almost not fair. It's like we should have other services that respond to some of these things. And the flip side is you never know when one of these situations is going to go in a way that requires some kind of forceful response. And it creates Mm -hmm. this back and forth ping pong dialogue of, you know, if you're a law enforcement officer, then kind of the, I think the, the message that you're, 
drilled with throughout training is get home safe, get home to see your family. Right. And what's interesting, because that's the side that I grew up on, you know, Mm -hmm. I went to, it wasn't school because it was August. So I went out with my mom. We were, my birthday was in a few days and like my dad went off to work and like I never saw him again, you know? So I think this mindset from a police point of view is do what you need to do to get home to see your family. And what's interesting is from the Black Lives Matter side, which totally on board with and agree with, no qualms there. It's they have the talk and like, here's how you interact with police so you can get home and see your family again. Right. And it's like these two sides that are having the same conversations in some way. But it's like the empathy or the understanding somewhere in this structure. It doesn't. <laughs> to me, it's like almost like they're having they're doing the same things. And there's <laughs> there's this separation of clearly the police have more power and more um, control in those situations. Um, but I think a lot of times it's from a sense of, of fear of, you know, the unknown. And right. I think they're kind of taught. And there's been articles about this from other officers. And it's kind of drilled into your head during academy of, like, you might die. So you need to do what you can to stay alive. Um, it's it's unfortunate. It's yeah, tragic. and there's a lot to unpack and just kind of what – you were just talking about and you know the first thing i was thinking is cops and teachers that's like the two one of the two big groups of people that i feel like because as a country we've made certain decisions about where we're going to how, where we're going to prioritize things like that's two groups of people that an inordinate inordinate amount of roles fall upon that really shouldn't all be their roles. And I, you know, I, I, I do agree with that. And I think, I mean, that's underpinning, you know, the whole defund the police idea is sort of redistributing all the money that is going to police right now and to people that are more suited to respond to the, some of those things. Um, another thing that I was thinking about as you were talking though, is that, you know, I do think that that mindset of like, get home to see your family from a police perspective is part of the, of the issue as well. Um, you know, you've probably seen it too, and I haven't deeply delved into the stats that they're using. I know you can sort of make stats tell you whatever you want them to, right. but um, you see a lot of things right now coming out about here are a whole bunch of jobs that are actually more dangerous than being a police officer. So a common one is pizza delivery guy. <laughs> <laughs> they die more frequently than police officers do. Um, and, but you know how they approach their job obviously is not with the same mentality. Like they don't come to the situations armed, you know, like it's, there is a sort of a, of a mentality that's been created with police um, that I, I do think is one of the issues. And again, like I know I'm saying police in a very broad term and like every right. single um precinct and you know blah, blah blah they're all different and some of them have great leadership and some of them have good people and are creating a really good program and then some of them i think minneapolis is <laughs> definitely one of them have a very problematic culture that's that's been an issue for a long time so you know i, I do think there's a lot of room for 
things to be quite different. Um, it will be interesting, I think, to see how much momentum we're able to keep here for there to be actual change. Um, I, I really hope to see it because I feel like we're we're doomed to just kind of keep, you know, it's <laughs> we might as well just throw in all the hot topics here. But, you know, I don't want it to be another gun violence thing where we, we just do this Ferguson Minneapolis cycle over and over and over and over again because nobody quite has the clout or the courage to, like, make actual changes that that make things different and i i mean i haven't it's not like i've gone out polling police officers but i i think that the people that are doing that job pretty well would probably welcome these changes like they've very much gotten wrapped up into protecting some things that probably they don't necessarily sleep well at night knowing that they kind of weren't able to do the right thing or have to make that difficult decision of your livelihood and the job that you really wanted to do for maybe really good reasons versus making a report that will probably cause you to get fired rather than the person that should get fired to get fired and things like that. So, Yeah. I mean, even thinking about, I've seen those charts of like, here are the most dangerous jobs and like pizza guy or taxi driver. Like there's a bunch of them that are on there. Yep. And I mean, one of the things that certainly is a difference is in terms of, almost thinking about like this pandemic of like, where do you put yourself at risk? Like if you're hanging out in a nursing home, that's probably a bad idea. Like if you're hanging out in a hospital all the time, probably not a good idea. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, officers and I lump them all all together, but they're different, but I think police, fire, rescue, EMS personnel are exposed to quite a bit more trauma life and death situations than pizza delivery people just, you know, uh, the stuff they have to deal with on a daily basis, you know, car accidents, gruesome injuries, death, Mm -hmm. uh, situations that might turn violent, um, might not, but might, um, it's, it's just kind of baked into that profession. And, kind of taken in a different direction, but again, seeing this from, I wouldn't say the inside because I'm not an officer, but certainly yep. friends and family who, who are, that there, again, structurally is not a good system for those individuals to be taken care of Yeah. in terms of mental health, in terms of self-care, and for the load of trauma that they often have to deal with, I don't think they're provided the tools to manage all of it well, mm-hmm. because, you know, in general, if you're going to see a therapist, then that could affect your job. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're diagnosed with PTSD or depression or generalized anxiety disorder, then that could have negative repercussions for your career. So sort of the mindset is just bottle it up and push through yeah. which we know from our jobs and our training that that doesn't work that well. Yep. Um, and that to me is a factor in all of this. You have these individuals who are under a lot of pressure and bad decisions happen. And that's a poor euphemism for someone's life being taken. I, I don't want to discount that at all. I feel like that just even saying poor decisions is, mm-hmm. is too light. Um, 
But when people are under stress, we're bad decision makers. And if the system sort of covers for those bad decisions, then that amplifies it. And mm-hmm. It's kind of where we are right now. Well, and so does if, you know, there's some inherent racism and, right. you know, that further amplifies it. So, you know, I, I agree with you and, and I am completely fine with if, you know, restructuring police means there are, you know, not only specialized people to deal with some of these situations that they're being called upon to deal with, whether it's a mental health emergency or homelessness or, you know, a million of different things that we currently have cops go do. But I would be completely fine with seeing the the quote unquote good cops, the people that are doing their job and doing it well, making a lot of money being, you know, well compensated for being good at what they do. I just also want to see them held accountable like that should be part of getting to be that i mean um you know it's (laughs) i've brought it up a number of times throughout uh this whole past month but you know there's the old chris rock sketch that he talks about you know being a police officer is just one of those jobs that you're not really allowed to have a bad day kind of like commercial airplane airline airline pilot you can't you know when you are given that much power and a deadly weapon and whatnot like you really have to be able to you know i mean it's unfair to say not have a bad day but there's just certain mistakes that you can't really you or you shouldn't really be permitted to make and his you know his joke has to do with like united being like most of our pilots are good pilots it's just a few of them that like to crash into mountains and you know i I think cops should be similar and you know if we get things restructured in a way that that is true and that's the sort of accountability that they have much like teachers i think the good ones should be really paid well we vastly undervalue you know what we're asking of them to do and what their role is and so well and i i I don't know if i was talking with my wife or somebody else about this um but just talking about the field of psychology or therapy and how that field I wanted to say, but how, how does it monitor or police itself? And decades ago, there was an enormous problem with counselors sleeping with their patients because mm-hmm. you had people who were vulnerable. You're kind of providing them treatment, making them feel better. And there's certainly a possibility for this romantic transference. Like there's a power differential there. You can take advantage of that. Right. And a lot of therapists were where they were forming these romantic relationships with patients taking advantage of that and maybe legitimately like hey we're married now and we're in a relationship but it's there's a power differential there it's not okay yeah and the field and i just just gets hammered into you during graduate school of like don't sleep with your patients (laughs) (laughs) literally i had a class (laughs) ethics and many many sleep with your patients many many classes where more or less you boil it down like don't sleep with your patients right um and there's rules. There's very clear. You can get this barred or yep. thrown out of being able to practice psychology. And the field has to sort of manage that itself because no one else is going to do it necessarily from the outside. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if a similar thing with the environment that exists, if that's really possible within law enforcement as much. It's a 
thing that I don't know of. No, and, you know, obviously there's super strong unions that are, in fact, enforcing the exact opposite of that. No, so anyway, I mean, yeah, no, there's obviously there's the police unions and there's been a lot of talk of that locally and nationally, which are very problematic. There's all sorts of rules in the books where it's allowing people that are essentially cops that are fired from one, you know, precinct or uh, community to just, you know, move two towns over and get a job again because they're not allowed to put these things into their, you know, record, they're not allowed to be considered as part of whether we should rehire you, um, which is one of the many, you know, issues with this. But at the same time, like, I still feel like we're kind of, we're still talking about this from, from our privileged position. Like, you know, at some point where you're talking, like, I'm just thinking about the fact that, uh, you know, my friends who live in in some of these communities are just saying like you know we don't ever call the police like that's just known like you don't call the police for anything because they're you know even if the worst of they show up and shoot the wrong person or whatever doesn't happen that it's just very rarely in their minds a solution to the problem that you want solved so these communities have been trying to figure out ways to police themselves for you know decades but then in many cases these are also communities that have you know because of red line policies and all the other things like they're they're not wealthy communities so it's kind of hard to create your own system to do this when you know nobody has money and resources are limited etc 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 so yeah anyway just (laughs) thinking about the fact that we're talking about, Oh, you should do this and do that. And then there's like entire communities that like feel like they cannot dial nine one one, even if like, you know, they feel like there's a robbery in progress across the street because they don't feel like the proper solution is going to happen in that situation. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I embrace the limitations that, that I have about this, this topic. And I think it's one of the reasons that we haven't rushed to record something. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, feeling like, well, we're two middle-aged white guys who should probably just shut up and let other people talk right now. <laughs> yep, for sure. And I, we even talked about having one of my friends on, but um, and since we talk a lot about mental health, like, um, you know, like I, I don't think you know, we're a month down the line and I don't think she's necessarily doing that great with all this. Like this has been an incredible burden on, you know, everybody in black communities and other communities of color as they have dealt with both sort of the initial murder and all of the fallout. Like, um, you know, so if you have, have friends of color, especially black friends right now, they're, they're probably still not doing okay. So <laughs> you no. know, reach out to the be kind see where you can help because um, you know, people are struggling out there. There's a lot of struggling. <laughs> I know. <laughs> There's a lot of uh, suffering. That That's another word for it. So it's a rough time. You want me to play more of the Ben Folds again? <laughs> uh, no, I think people get, you the, get the gist. We, we, it was interesting. We tried to do a socially distant, almost an evening out Mm-hmm. Was that a week ago? Time's strange. 
That feels like a month ago, but right. maybe, maybe, maybe it was a week ago. Um, and it was just weird. It was a distillery that always was open outside. Uh, everyone's wearing masks. All the tables are 10 feet apart, six to 10 feet apart. You had to order on your phone. You had to pay on your phone. Wait, waiters brought drinks out on a tray. They didn't even touch them. You just had to take your drink off the tray. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, I don't know, it felt like it was 8.45, and they are like, okay, last call. <laughs> we just got here. <laughs> and then we spent like an hour trying to figure out if there's any place we could get some like late night, quote unquote, late night at like 9 o'clock. Right, and the answer, the answer was no. Yeah, yeah. They're like, oh, this place is open. We walked there. It's like pitch dark. <laughs> <laughs> it is not a normal summer. No, right no. And yeah, it's it's just weird. And it doesn't, it just seems like that whole, the whole pandemic thing is like COVID's getting worse because people are being less caught responsible or smart or whatever. Uh, I thought it was just that we increased the testing. So, uh, that, so, so more tests are coming up positive. That That's a theory. <laughs> that's one theory. I don't know if it's the right one. Um, and it's just going to get worse in the fall, which is not that far away. So I don't know what happens there. Uh, I mean, I think what what happens and, you know, I don't have any more of a crystal ball than anyone else is that we are fast moving towards another, you know, shutdown for some amount of time. I mean, I think as of today, both Texas and Arizona are already having to announce some pretty big uh, rollbacks of their of their opening. Um, and, I, you know, I think it's human nature. I mean, I think even amongst our friends who we've been very lucky, I don't know um, that at least among our like immediate circle of friends, I know we've had some more distant and, you know, for you, some relatively close family that's had some issues with COVID. But, you know, amongst our friends, we really haven't been affected. And so it's human nature to want to be able to get together and do stuff. And we've done some things socially distanced, but we don't do it perfectly every time we do it. And so I don't know. I mean, there's just there's a human nature component to that. It's difficult to stay separated for months and months and months and months and Unfortunately, when you try to reopen things, some people go a little too gung-ho. Yeah. I mean, I'm trying to think of how many buildings I've been in besides my house in three months. <laughs> like my in-law's house, mm-hmm. barely, to like help clean dishes. Right. After eating outside uh, my therapist's office. Mm-hmm. And I did go golfing. And sat inside afterwards to eat. You've briefly been in my house. Briefly been in your house. And I think that's about it. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I'm being super cautious because of my you know, health background and whatnot. But sooner right. or later, I'm going to have to go back to work and be in a hospital every day. Mm-hmm. And I'm fortunate that I've been able to work from home. And we'll see how long that lasts. I don't know when they're going to be calling us back in. I've been trying to entertain myself in other ways. Yes. Uh, let's see. Well, I think last time we talked, I was starting Final Fantasy VII, which I did finish. Yeah, I'm still uh, like chapter four-ish, I think. So you got a ways to go. I've been my usual. I started strong, petered out, 
have not returned to it in now probably the better part of a month. So. Yeah, it was fun. The last few hours, and I don't remember the original game well enough to remember the plot and all that. I'm sure those games, the plot is always a bit nonsensical and all over the place. But the last few hours of that game just really went sideways. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, what is happening? Who are these people? And then it just old man tangent. It, the last two hours of the game is basically this nonstop rail shooting thing. And then it's like a series of boss fights that you can't really pause or save in the middle of. Mm-hmm. And if you die during any one place, you kind of have to start all over again, which is just the way to design a game that pissed me off. Mm-hmm. It's like, I'm old. I don't have time to devote 90 minutes to a game at a time. And it, I thought I was beyond the point in my life where not being able to pause Final Fantasy would stop interfering in my life. I thought <laughs> I was beyond that. Well, it used to always be the super long cutscene that you would right. ac- accidentally get to, and like you couldn't do anything. You had to wait for that. But yeah, and I think I've even told the story before where in grad school, my roommate Brian just was like ready to go out, and I was like, "All right, let me just. I'm at the end of this game. Let me just finish it." And then an hour and a half later, he's like, "Can we go?" I was like, "Well, no, I beat it. I'm just watching the end scene." But it took like a half hour. Like the battle took an hour. The end the credits took another 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. He was furious. So that, that was close to 20 years ago. And I was like, well, that's the last time that'll happen in my life. Nope. <laughs> Son was down for a nap, playing the game, in the midst of one of these things where I can't pause. I was like, well, surely after I beat this thing, it'll let me save it. Right. Wife wakes him up. He comes downstairs. She's like, I don't really want him watching this. I was like, no, I don't want, I don't want him watching it either, but I should be done in a couple moments here. No, he's watching me like fight a bunch of stuff on a motorcycle. And he's like, what are you doing? I was like, oh, well, there are some bad guys. I'm trying to help. And he's totally into it. He's all excited, but beat that something else happens. And I just finally had to turn it off. Um, it was a, it was a disaster. So that that's the best you could do to to entertain and distract yourself right now. There's that. <laughs> I started playing, which is really uplifting, The Last of Us over again. Mm, oh, the original one. Because the sequel which... came out, and I don't. I, I'm trying to stay away from spoilers, so I haven't written about it much. But yeah, I want to play the original again, which was, I think, when I bought the PlayStation Four, it came loaded on there. Mm-hmm. Which I never. I haven't played it since I originally played it years ago. Um, so that's been kind of enjoyable. I then started watching Avatar, The Last Airbender, mm-hmm. about five episodes in. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty good. been trying to golf a bit, walking in the rain. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's, that has been your trend. What about you? How are you keeping uh... yourself occupied? Well, you know, I, I continue to uh, work on the, the Turd Ferguson songbook. Um, we'll see, you know, what, if anything, ever comes of that. But, you know, keeps me occupied. I still have been taking in a lot of live music streams as much as I can. Uh, we got together socially distanced and watched a, a music stream last Friday. I don't know if you want to talk about that at all. Yeah, yeah. There's a band that our friend Siri 
and I saw, I don't know what year it was, maybe 2016 or so, they opened up for the darkness, this band called In the Whale. Mm -hmm. These two dudes from Colorado, uh, one's a drummer, one's a guitar player, they both do vocals a little bit, and they just have so much energy and noise that came out of them. They just kind of forced you to pay attention to them. Mm -hmm. um, and so I found them on Spotify and follow along when they release new stuff and follow them on Twitter. And just, it's like this little band that I enjoy that would be fun to see them get bigger or something like that. Um, and like earlier in the year, their tour van broke down and they started up a GoFundMe to repair their van. Mm -hmm. uh, I like chipped in some money for that and just have this weird affiliation with this band. Obviously they don't know me or anything, but that was cool. They were just, they performed from, I don't know if it was their basement or a studio of some sort. It looked like a studio of some sort and it might be one of the same, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so that was cool. We set up a uh, Wi-Fi and watched it down by fire pit outside although it was like 85 90 degrees and it was not the best night for a fire <laughs> no no it wasn't but we were just committed to that was the idea and that's what we were going to do yep and then after that i introduced you to plamping which you know has been another one of my distractions during, and, and i uh, can't imagine too many people out there in the audience are familiar with clamping so can you well, educate them they know me, so, you know, they might. <laughs> uh, so anyway, plamping, as as far as I can tell, and, and I, I apologize to whoever the originator is if I'm misrepresenting it, but there uh, is a fairly popular stream multiple times per week that is a guy named Dave Dresden. He's one half of Gabriel and Dresden, who are like a DJ producers. They release their own music. Um They've been around for a while, kind of trance, progressive house, that sort of sort of thing. So he's on four times a week, like one night is a techno stream, one night is a deep house stream, one night is like new releases, and one night is like club classics. And it's created this little community, the, the club quarantine community. Uh, but he and then a number of other DJs who also have been, you know, that's really all they can do right now is like any other um, entertainment professionals, musicians is get on and do some sort of stream. And so people started joking about sort of the repetition of there being both plants and lights, especially lava lamps. And so then somebody started calling it plamping by plants and lava lamps. And then it's become this thing where like you'll go to somebody else's DJ stream and they're, you know, playing and people in this chat are talking about plamping and the DJ will stop and be like, what are you, what is plamping? <laughs> and now you must are obligated to at least have two lava lamps going, some plants, some shrubbery. Right. Yeah. So uh, Dave Dresden has been making a joke of it where like, you know, each week, like there's been getting to be progressive. So like the night that we were watching it, I think there were like five lava lamps and then, the very next day when I tuned in, there were eight lava lamps. <laughs> it gets to be a fire hazard at some point. Those things are hot. They, they do get hot. I don't know if – I don't think there can be any real change in the technology because the heat is important to how a lava lamp functions. So you, you can't put like an LED in that. I was so. wondering, are there any LED lava lamps? 
I don't think it would work because it's got to be heating up the oil to to happen. Well, couldn't so. you have a digital looking thing like your glow ball that you have? I, I mean, yeah, yeah, but then that's not a lava lamp. It's just a different thing. Well, so. speaking of, I mean, when are you going to get set up for your throwdown? Yeah, it's it's in progress. Um, I have a lot of work to do to be ready to do a stream. Like, you know, Lisa, my co-DJ for dance parties and I had been, you know, talking about we're going to have another dance party, but we had been talking for, you know, a couple of years, basically, since the last dance party that we've had. And uh, obviously, I think with COVID, um, that's unlikely to occur now until like 2021. So I got bored and decided to like start doing it again. But I, I had to buy a new little piece of hardware. Um, I realized that if you're going to broadcast online, you really need to have good music files like mp3s don't cut it like the sound degradation just kind of sucks so but having to purchase new music and wave or other you know lossless formats and i just got my lights back from from lisa so i hope within the next week or so i'll give it a test run and we'll see if if anybody tunes in if anybody cares well, it, you, uh, you're asking me about how to set up twitch and did you yep. start playing around with Streamlabs or something I did download Streamlabs. That's about as far as I got. I looked because Twitch has kind of their own thing now. Um, so I looked at that a little bit. Um, but there, I was telling you when we were talking about it, one thing I've discovered is that um, I, I have one mix uploaded to a, a, a different website that's out there. Um and they're starting to have video streaming. And what is unique about them is that they pay the artists for when you play them, much like Spotify is supposed to. <laughs> There's some debate out there about enjoy, how enjoy much, that fraction of a penny. How much uh, Spotify actually gets around to paying people, but setting that aside, um, there's not the same issues um, on this site called Mixcloud um, as there is when you do it on Twitch. If you do it on Twitch right now, you basically can't save your streams anymore for people to come back and find because the music industry is going after both DJ streams and just any streamers that are using licensed music very hard right now about um, taking that stuff down. And there's a lot of people that are living in fear of like getting their channel perma band that they spent years and years building an audience. But um, anyway, uh, so I, I would like to be able to switch between Twitch and it's called Mixcloud. If you want to look me up on Mixcloud, I do have a mix up there. You can search by my, by my name, Chris Benefield and, and find it from, I think dance party two or three. So, <laughs> uh, are there? Can people anticipate a drop or two in there? <laughs> this is dance party. It's it's all drops all the time, all right? right? <laughs> probably no lyrics, but there's probably some drops. Uh, it, uh, there's, uh, I think, a fair amount of lyrics actually. Um, you know, there, that's a an argument in the trance community, Mike, about uh, traditional trance music did not have lyrics, so people that kind of were in on it in 1995 when it first got to be big are fairly anti lyrics in, in their trance, but newer trance has a lot of lyrics, which I tend to enjoy personally. So, Well, 
I've been to your dance parties and, and you don't really enjoy lyrics all that much. <laughs> like, are there any words in these songs? What do you got? Anything? Uh, that is patently untrue, Mike. You are, you have a, there's a bias there. That... <laughs> My bias is like asking for top 40 songs to be put in your mix. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> are there going to be any Backstreet Boys? Like, No. Uh, <laughs> Good times. Well, speaking of plamping, I, I we were joking on Friday that I I, <laughs> I defiled one of your plants by accident. <laughs> Although by accident is yeah, that's not true. That was not projection. an accident. <laughs> I was dancing with the plant. I don't know what happened. I mean, what really happened is I had had that plant for probably 15 years at that point. And I think it was just about done anyway. But coincidentally, after that night that you kept dancing with the plant, it shriveled up and died no, shortly. No before. other man would do after <laughs> <laughs> was, was, uh, whining and dining the plant. Yeah. What year was that? Like 2013? Uh, I don't know. I'd have to go back and look. Uh, yeah. It was a long time ago. Yep. Well, maybe to, uh, to wind down in, in quite a few ways it's which we alluded to at the front it's it's been a, a, a challenging month for both of us kind of this past week was a uh, a mental gauntlet for me mm -hmm. um, friday you talked about, we talked about going outside and uh, watching the in the whale show and club quarantine it was yep. it was also the third anniversary of my brother's suicide so yep. I was very thankful that you and a couple of other friends came over to keep me distracted and, you know, keep, keep me company. Like I said, for like an 86 degree humidity fire. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You guys took one for the team. And then uh, the month kind of starts off that way for you. Yeah. So June 1st was the two year anniversary of Mia, my stepdaughter, taking her own life. So... Uh, you know, that one for me kind of be just because of everything that was going on at that moment, because that's like right in the middle of, you know, things being crazy here locally, like it sort of snuck up on me. So um, and it was also just a little bit different time in terms of like, you know, things weren't really opening back up yet, both because, you know, it was still earlier in the COVID, but then also, you know. <laughs> a lot of people were afraid to go and do anything at that point, um, especially here in the city. So other than go out and protest, which, um, you know, maybe I should have done as more of a distraction. But um, anyway, yeah, no, it definitely was a, a little different in that it a kind of snuck up on me and B, there was not as much of an opportunity to, like, go surround myself with people. So, um, yeah, no, it's, uh, you know, anniversaries are rough. Yeah, it's a lot to process. I feel like the one last year, which would have been the second year, I mean, they're always kind of tough because it just brings everything to your mind again and you go through uh, the process of being sad, being angry, accepting and all that. Um, this year was a little sharper for a few reasons. I had decided to write and uh, post an article on my site, just something I wrote, for the most part, I wrote most of it, I don't know, over a year ago as part of my process of just trying to make sense of everything. 
of just what happened that day from my perspective when I learned that he had uh, ended his life. Um, and so the, that morning is pretty sharp in my mind. Uh, my mom was in town. I went to work, uh, saw some patients, and then stuff sort of went sideways as some old, uh, a close friend. And then this other friend who I, I just talked to, you know, once in a while wanted to get in touch with me and I didn't know why. And, you know, kind of found out that she had some information and got me in touch with my brother's chief. And, you know, I found out over the phone and then I was like, well, I, I got to get home and see my mom and be the one that tells her. So I remember all that, but the afternoon's a bit of a blank page. Yeah. It's just, I'm sure we were in the house talking about him crying, just trying to figure out how we're going to get to New Jersey. Cause we're all in Minnesota. We got tickets for the next day. Um, and even like that next week, there's moments I remember pretty sharply, but it's such a blur. Yeah. Um, so I posted that on Friday and got a lot of, you know, very nice feedback from friends and family and <clears throat> posted on Twitter and Reddit and, you know, got some other people I don't know, but had said some kind things about, you know, thanking me for sharing that. Um, so it was just a lot to absorb. Mm-hmm. I'm glad I did it. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, externalizing is very, is very helpful. Um, but I think, was it Saturday? Saturday or Sunday, I took like two naps. <laughs> I was sleeping like most of the day. I think just was mentally a little, a little spent. What, yeah. what about you? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, I was just thinking too, uh, you know, my experiences at the time were very similar to yours in that there's, a few things that I remember very vividly, but there's whole swaths of that time that are very, very vague at best. And I mean, there was a, <laughs> there's a fair amount of stress going on in my life before that, you know, it was going to be a stressful summer no matter what. Yeah. And so I think that's part of why, like, uh, you know, there's less, I think for me, really clear, distinct moments, um, in part because of that. I've always said though that kind of the flip side of that was in some ways it was kind of protect protective and that I, I just didn't have the luxury to really like pause everything and you know, like completely fall apart. Like that just wasn't an option <laughs> at that time. So I was sort of forced to move forward whether you really wanted to or not. Um, and I guess you can sort of argue about it, you know, if that prolongs grief or, um, you know, is problematic in the long run. But I think at least in the short term, it was sort of protective in some ways that I, I did just kind of have to do things. So and then, you know, because of everything going on, I think, uh, you know, here locally and um, nationally, when the anniversary rolled around, I think it just for me, it just kind of got wrapped up and up all of that in weird ways. So, um, in no small part, like the most dealings by far I've had with the police were, you know, because Mia would go missing, would run away and we reported and sometimes it would come out to take statements and blah, blah, blah. Like that's the vast majority of the interacting with the police that I've, I've done as, you know, really in my life, certainly as an adult. Um, and uh, so, yeah, it was just, you know, it just got kind of rolled into emotionally everything else going on at the time for me. So, yeah, as you were talking about that, I was just thinking and I don't, I don't know if this is poor form to say, but 
Mia would have been out on the front lines of the protest. There's no doubt about that. <laughs> <laughs> I think I even said, uh, like on the on the actual anniversary day, is like that was one of the the sort of you know just random trains of thought I had was like, what? How would Mia be interacting with? everything going on right now and like i had a few ideas like the one that you just said but the reality is that whatever it would have actually been would have probably been like <laughs> several times more outrageous than anything we could possibly imagine yeah msnbc or something yeah if you know she would have been holding the camera inside of the third precinct or <laughs> you know who knows but like it it would have been extreme i'm sure yeah, it's just uh, say such a, a waste, but that seems dismissive. But um, you know, her life, my brother's life. Our first podcast was about Chris Cornell dying. Yeah, um, which was just a few weeks, about a month or so before my brother ended his life. Right, it's way too common. Yep. So I think my my hope is by talking about this, writing it, encouraging other people to at least think about it, talk about it, try to spare other folks that that feeling of devastation because it is not fun. Well, and I think in what you just said is that like for us on the outside, like both of these people were, you know, just larger than life like they're people that lots of people wanted to know and be around and um you know obviously i think both of them reached a point where they didn't feel that anymore yeah. uh, and so uh, i also think it's important for people that you know on the odd chance that a person listening is sort of feeling that way is to take that perspective that like you may feel like you're sort of in this you know dark hole this place you can't get out of but that you know the way you're feeling about yourself is very likely not the way anybody else around you feels about you like you know just the long list of people that you know, met your brother and, you know, really enjoyed spending time with him, whether it was like for one day or had known him their entire lives is, is huge. Um, so I don't know, just that it speaks to the, how one, when you get to that point really loses that perspective. And I, you know, I know those words might not make a difference to, to somebody hearing it, but you know, it is important to know that like, you know, however you're feeling, there are undoubtedly people in your life that really do care that would really, um, you know, would not hesitate for a second if you reached out to them. Um, so I don't know, I'm rambling a little bit. No, it's, it's okay to ramble. No, I, one of the things we did, because I took, I took that Friday off. I, I wasn't going to originally, but I was like, I, I have some time because we haven't done anything in three months. So I was like, I have some time built up and I'll take Friday off. And my brother, again, kind of mixing topics here we're talking about. Um, my brother had given a speech in 2015 at this organization. It's the 200 Club. And... It's one of these nonprofits that is supportive of police, fire, rescue, EMS personnel. Mm -hmm. um, the whole premise is it's like $200 to join. And I don't know if that's a yearly thing or a one-time thing. And that money is pulled. And then 
when somebody in the police fire rescue community is seriously injured or is killed in the line of duty, then a 200 club shows up to give some money to the family for funeral arrangements and just all the stuff that comes up because it's such a, such a chaotic time in, the, in that family's life. And my mom's been through that with her, uh, you know, my father, her husband. Right. So she's very much involved in an organization and, 2015 was 30 years from the day or the year that my father was killed. And 30 is just a big number in our family. So my brother on the 30th anniversary gave this speech and we had video of it. And I'm sure that I watched it like soon after this happened. I didn't, I didn't go out there for it, which maybe I should have. So we have this speech and my wife wanted to watch it. So we watched it that morning and I don't know, it's about 10, 15 minutes and it's like a few years ago. So just, he looks more himself, like mm -hmm. he's just looks healthier. You know, he's, he's joking and he's like going through a speech and he's talking about being a survivor himself. Cause you know, his father died when he was like 14, right before high school. And he's living for his two boys. And it was just hard to hear. It's like, it's like him. It's like, he, you just want to play this speech for him. Like, right. like, hey, listen to yourself. Like, this this will get better. This will pass. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm sure, like, just having known, you know, Mia for years, that just incredibly precocious and vivacious and yep. really, really smart mm -hmm. and kind of being so full of life. And I <clears throat> something that you had said, and I just remember being blown away by how composed you were at her like service uh something about like you know this world was too harsh for her yeah that like she was just too pure of a spirit for this really miserable world that way <laughs> um and it you know just stuck with me of it's almost like it's not not her fault like we just we're not kind to each other like as a system like you know we have even like medicine is kind of this commodity and mental health right. is something that is a privilege. Like I'm privileged to have a therapist, but like everybody should have a therapist. Like we should right. encourage that. So now I'm rambling, but <laughs> no, I, you know, I agree. And I think for that reason, and you know, because when people are struggling, like both of them were, obviously it's very difficult for them to be the one to reach out. And you've said it many times. I think you maybe said it just a few minutes ago, but, um, you know, just we say it again and again, but if you have anybody in your life that you're worried about, you know, is maybe reaching that point, like don't hesitate, like, you know, reach out. Don't be afraid that like, bringing the topic up is going to put ideas in somebody's head or something like that. Like, right. you know, have, have that difficult conversation with somebody, even if you're off base, like it still says like, Hey, I'm, I'm here, I'm concerned and just wanted to be sure that everything's okay. And, um, at the same time, you know, also realize that, you know, any one person's ability to, you know, prevent something like this is, limited like you can reach out and you can try to be there to help but that doesn't necessarily mean that you know you're going to solve 
the issues for that person. Um, so sometimes just being the one to reach out is what that person needs. And sometimes it, you know, unfortunately may not be enough, but you'll never be doing the wrong thing by reaching out. Right. Absolutely. And maybe that's a good point to stop. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Take care of each other. Take care of yourself. Yep. Um, And, you know, not everybody in COVID-19 times is, is, you know, thinking of taking their own life, but a lot of people are suffering and maybe not always able to put words to it. And so the more you can reach out to, you know, friends, family, whomever, um, in some way and a bit of kindness, a bit of warmth, a bit of anything is good. Um, you know, I think our sort of American exceptionalism, rugged individualism, uh, nuclear families, all these things has eroded some communities that, you know, are helpful to a lot of people to sort of stay connected. And so, um, then when suddenly you have this, crisis that causes people to be that much more careful about how they spend time around each other. There's a lot of people that are having a hard time with that and maybe aren't even fully aware of how hard of a time they're happening, having. So, you know, re- reach out. Yeah, there's a lot of isolation, forced isolation. Like You're not able to really get together in groups and a lot of people are working from home or I heard somebody else describe it more, more fairly as living at work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so like I've, and it almost feels cheesy, but like I've reached out to you and, and some of our other friends and whether it's a text or something on Facebook messenger, or even like having conversations of like, like, Hey, thank you for X, Y, and Z. I really appreciate that. Like, it was great, mm-hmm. great to see you. And it almost feels like that scene in Anchorman where it's like, we're, we're together and having a great time. This is wonderful. <laughs> They're like, okay, right. like, let it go. Like, but I've been like that guy. I've been like, right. isn't this wonderful that I such appreciate your time? And I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think we could all use a little more of that. Just yeah. being genuine and being vulnerable and, you know, kind of letting some of that cheese out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, and everybody has to do these things kind of in accordance with their own personality. But like another thing that someone can do is just, you can talk for yourself about like what's been hard or like where you've been struggling. And then a lot of times that gives somebody else that maybe wasn't really able to put words to that yet, that opportunity to like have that voice of, you know, somebody that you didn't realize a friend of or family or whomever that's struggling, then hearing something come from you is able to say, yeah, like, (laughs) (laughs) You are correct, sir. Yeah, me too. So, well, I appreciate your time here this evening. I'm glad we could uh, get together once again through through all this. You know, maybe we'll record again in the future. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, per the Ben Fold song, I'm a little afraid of what another month Uh, might reveal in 2020, but uh, you know. Well, uh, you know, maybe we should record next week before the meteor strikes. Oh my goodness. Well, I don't even know what happened to the murder hornets. They kind of came and went. That was, <laughs> yeah. uh, I think they just, they weren't doing enough murdering right. to stay in the 24 hour news cycle. They'll be back. They'll be back, back for the fall. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, well, 
sir, I love you. Take care of yourself. Same to you. Thanks. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. And uh, hopefully we'll we'll be back at this again shortly. Look out for the meteor. Look out for the meteor. (laughs) 